Welcome. This is the weekly Sunday sermon from Rancho Baptist Church in Temecula, California. You can find us at ranchobaptistchurch.org. This week's message by Pastor Jason Swanson, an overview of the Gospel of John, Signs and Times, Part 1. The original date of this message was the 11th of September, 2022. Well, good morning and welcome to Rancho Baptist Church. I feel like you guys should say welcome to me. I feel like I haven't been here for a year, and it's only been two weeks. Missed, missed this. Missed the opportunity we have to gather together to sing to one another, to sing to our Lord, and to sing songs like we just sang. Praise be to our wonderful God who has gifted us with the most immeasurable gift imaginable, His Son. So to give you a little recap, in case you guys were wondering or maybe you didn't hear exactly where, where we've been, my wife and I went to Missouri to spend a little bit of time with, with her family before we went to the Sing Conference in, in Nashville to meet up with Pastor Shane, Pastor Eric, their wives, Brad and Joyce, and, and we just drank deeply in uh, all that the Lord had for us, our time with her, with her folks and her brother and sister-in-law, just very, very encouraging the, the Sing Conference happens every year, and we've been now two years, and it's just a really encouraging time. It's, it's hard to explain the, the joy that I receive. I love bringing the word Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, but it's nice to, to receive instead of be the one giving. And not only do we, are we blessed with just awesome worship, we're just singing our hearts out to the Lord. And I think there was something like 7,000 people that attended this conference. And we were singing songs like we just sang there. We were singing songs like In Christ Alone. And if you don't, if you don't know, um, yeah, the Gettys, Keith and Kristen Getty, maybe write that down. If you don't know Matt Boswell, if you don't know uh, Matt Papa, if you don't know City of Light, write, write those down and, and, and Google them and listen to them. They are um, just a blessing. And they are what we would term kind of... Um, the new genre of, of hymns. They're putting out new hymns all the time. And these conferences, we get to sing those hymns. We get to learn some new ones. And we get to sit in some wonderful teaching um, such, yeah, such as just, it was such a blessing. Um, Alistair Begg was there and was blessed by, by him. Um, yeah, John Piper, some others. Probably one of the major highlights was uh, that we went to the Grand Old Opry. And we got to sit and, and kind of be sung to and join in. And it's, I mean, it's just so loud and amazing. But as we were, as we were singing, they had a special guest and Johnny Erickson Tata came up. And we're not certain how many more times she's going to be able to join in and things like that. But she is always such a testimony of the Lord's goodness and grace and such a challenge. Every time I hear her, she always says, I, I would never take the, the tragedy that happened to me away and my paralysis and, and the difficulties that I've had because my walk with Jesus is so much tighter than it ever would have been if, I, if it wasn't for this chair and, and, and the difficulties that I've had. And then she shared her perspective on, on when she heard about, about the war in Ukraine and when Russia invaded. And it was an entirely different perspective than I had she said that her mind immediately went to all of those that, that were disabled. That perhaps she started thinking, 
when the bombs were going off and the sirens were going and everybody was running from their houses to shelter, that these were, were, were trapped in situations in basements or what, what have you, and they couldn't get out of their own homes. And say that, so they were left there. And so she rallied her, her whole ministry team to go and to send like search parties in different places in the Ukraine to gather these folks and, and to bring them to safety. And I believe she said up to this point that, that they've found 550 different people. And isn't God good? To hear about that and to be able to pass that on, it, it, it was so encouraging. And then after that, she, she had two women, or I don't know if the Gettys who teamed this up and, and got it, but there was a, a woman from Russia and a, and a woman from the Ukraine. And they came up and they sang each in their own language and then we joined in. And it was just beautiful. And, and I'm, I'm just taken aback again and again at the goodness of our God. I've spent the last two, three weeks just going over the gospel of John, reading it again and again and again. I think I'm at six or seven times now that I've read through the gospel and just soaked it in. And I'm so thankful for, for what we are about to embark on and for the opportunity we have to dig into the gospel of John and to spend some isolated Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. And I don't know how long this is going to take us. I'm certainly not going to run through it. I want us to soak in every truth that is contained in God's word for us in that. But I see so much of God's goodness. I see God's goodness since I've come home. I see God's goodness over here with a family willing to look after our kids. I hear of God's goodness as I come home and I hear that some of you were evacuated and then you were able to go back to your homes. Why? Because of rain. That's God's goodness. Again and again and again, we see God's goodness. Are we thankful? Are we giving him praise? This is, 9, this is the anniversary of 9-11. Praise the Lord that he is sovereign and in control no matter what's happening around us and that we can trust him. Hey, let, let me start our time off um, praying for, for us, praying for our country, thanking God for what he's done and his provision, praying for Ukraine, praying for Russia. Let me also include those that in the aftermath of 9-11 that are still living with the reality of the loss that they suffered there. Loved ones that are now gone. Let's, Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We acknowledge that you are our God, that you are our creator, that you are the sovereign one over us. And that nothing escapes your gaze, nothing escapes your control, nothing passes by you that you don't allow to pass through your oh-so-gracious fingers, Lord. Filtering what you have and allowing other things that are difficult to come to us. I I do pray for for Mary Keeling, for Eric, for their whole family, that you be with them. I praise you for what what we witnessed in Nashville, seeing a, a Ukrainian young woman and a Russian young woman singing songs of praise to you together. May you continue to unite your church, Lord. Continue to unite believers. Use us to be lights. Thank you for Johnny, Todd, and and her ministry. Pray that you would allow more and more folks that are disabled to be found and to be helped to be taken to countries where they can be looked after, such as Germany and Hungary. 
I pray for the leaders of our country, Lord, and the decisions that they make, that first and foremost that they would come to a saving knowledge of you. I praise you, Lord, that that the safety, the security of, of our lives isn't bound up in the government that rules over us, but it is in your oh-so-capable and sovereign hands. And we rejoice in that this morning, and we rejoice in you, Lord Jesus, and all that you mean to us. For we have come together today for no other purpose but to exalt you, to speak of you, to think of you, as we already have to remember you and the incredible gift that you have given us, pouring out your blood for us, purchasing our redemption. I too pray for for those in the aftermath of 9-11, for those families that are still suffering with the loss and the sorrow, that your grace would be evident, that your peace would be overflowing. And Lord, as we get into the gospel of John this morning, may you ignite our hearts for a a love for you that just is unquenchable, that would never die out, and that we would see you, Lord Jesus, for who you are, and that we would tell others about you. So guide our time now, and it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. If you're you're a visitor, if you're not a visitor and you have prayer requests, please let us know. If you have comments, questions, let us know. Anything. Um, We want to serve you. We want to be used by the Lord in whatever way that we can. And if that means that you have a question about this or that or you need um, something, physically, spiritually, write it down, call the church, let us know. Let me set you aside or at least calm your, your nerves in case you're, you're looking at your notes and going, how is Pastor Jason going to get through eight signs? We're only going through four today. I've decided come Wednesday after working on this a couple times that there was no way unless I kept you all here two hours. Um, to go through all eight signs. So what we're going to do is just do the first four. And where I want to start this morning, I've, I've said this before, it is so helpful as you come to a book to look at the beginning and the end. I know in school you can cheat and you can kind of do a book report like that, but that's not what I'm talking about. I'm, I'm talking about coming to God's word and, and seeing from the beginning and just the first couple verses and then the end of the gospel of John, the last couple verses, how hopeful it is to see how... John frames everything and really what he's getting at because it's clear even in the first five verses and in the end what John's purpose and reason is for writing even though we'll get into that as well as we look at chapter 20 verse 31 a little bit later. God is so good. Look at God's word, the gospel according to John chapter 1 verses 1 to 5. And think about this as, as, as I read this, as we read this together. Think about Genesis 1-1. Think about how this is almost exactly in the same words. The Greek equivalent of what the Hebrew would be. 
make no mistake, John is letting us know, the Lord is letting us know that that is in focus. And even though this isn't the way that other gospel writers start, this is the way that the gospel of John starts, and it's for purpose, and it's for serious intentionality that he starts it off this way. He wants you and I and everyone who reads this or who will ever read this to know right from the start, right as he gets out of the gate, that he's all about one thing, and that is letting us know that Jesus Christ is no ordinary man. That Jesus Christ is indeed God. And so that's where he starts. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him and apart from him. Nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. So notice where John starts. He takes us back to the beginning. And almost what we could look at is something of a genealogy, and yet it's not a genealogy. You don't see names of people in here, names of men. And so it's very helpful for us as we begin our time in the Gospel of John to, to look at the other Gospels, called the Synoptic Gospels, called Matthew, Mark, Luke. We know about them. And if we were to open up Matthew, and if we were to look at Matthew, we would see that, that his emphasis is distinct, but it's different than John. It's altogether different. What, what he is presenting to us in the book of Matthew is, is Christ and his kingship. That, that Christ is the coming king. And he does this in his own personal way. And he does this by tracing a genealogy of Christ, his lineage, who he came from. And he points that back to who? To, to probably the, the two most important people in the nation of Israel's history. King David and Abraham. The king of all kings, King David. And Abraham, the father of the nation. And he starts with them, and then he works his way all the way to Jesus in this genealogy. And what is he doing? He's letting us know that Jesus is rightfully a king. And then when we come to the Gospel of Mark, we see an entirely different picture portrayed for us. As each of the Gospel writers, they really are, they're giving us a picture that's distinct that has just a little bit of nuance in each one of them. Even though they have the same stories and they recount this and that, they do it from a slightly different vantage point and angle. And so the way that they paint the portrait of Jesus Christ is different. And, and Mark, he's what? He's a servant. And it shows Jesus being a servant over and over and over again. But then when you get to Luke, it's, it's again different. Luke, he, he gives us a genealogy, but, but he flips it upside down. Instead of going back and then going forward, he actually starts with Jesus and then goes backwards to who? To Adam. Most believe that, that that's Mary's genealogy. And, and why would he do that? He's doing that because he wants to prove to one and all who would hear and read the book of Luke that Jesus Christ is a man. He is 100% man, so it's presenting Christ in his manhood. So we see first in his kingship, 
Second, in his servanthood. And then, and then, and then in, Mar- in Luke, we see him in his manhood. And then we get to John. And we have to be reminded as well that this was written after the others. No doubt John had read them, seen them. He didn't need them to corroborate all of his stories. He was there as an eyewitness. But John's perspective is different. And and his intention and purpose for writing is different. Do you know how he's painting Christ? Clear from the beginning in these first five verses, he is painting Christ as God, not as a man. And as far back as we could go, going back to Adam, that's pretty far, right? You can't go back in humanity any further than Adam. But when we talk about God, it's, it's as if he's blowing everything up and saying, no, 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 he is altogether different. He doesn't have a beginning. Why? Because he's God, although he was there in the beginning. And then actually we're told that he was the one who created everything. And he's so majestic, so wonderful, that the only way you can describe him is with these metaphors. And first he says he's the word, and we're going we're gonna to see that over and over and over again. The power of Jesus' word is much different than the power of any of your words. Than the power of my words. Oh, my, my tongue is powerful. We know that from James. But nothing like the tongue, the speech of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to see that this morning. And then we see that he is the life. And we're going to see this theme presented to us again and again and again. Not just that he is the giver of life, physical life. But that he is the source and the agent, the giver of eternal life. And that he is also the light that shines in the darkness. And in this, what, what, it, what is expressed is, is different than the other three Gospels. You see, in the other three Gospels, Jesus is presented in such a way that he, he keeps presenting the kingdom of God and pointing everybody, repent. Why? Because the kingdom of God is at hand. Turn now. And then when, when we look at the book of John, it's, it's not so much the proclamation of the kingdom as it really is the proclamation of Jesus Christ himself. That he is the theme. That his mission is what is front and center. So it's as if John points to Jesus in order to point to God the Father and to show us there is no distinction between them. And everything that Jesus Christ does, this is what he says. What I do are the works that my Father has told me to do. What I say are my Father's words. In fact, the words that I speak actually come from Him. And again and again and again, He he equates Himself with God. We see it right here in the beginning. John 1, 1 1-5. Over and over again, He's saying, Who is this? This is God. This is God incarnate. And so He's painting Christ in all of His Godhood. That's why he calls him the word. That's why we'll, we see, and, and when we come to it in John 8, 58, do you remember? He, he says, oh, Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. And do you know how they responded? They responded, wait, wait, wait. What are you talking about? You're not even yet 50 years old, and yet you say that Abraham rejoiced when he saw your day? Like you were talking to Abraham? Or that you heard Abraham? And Jesus is like, yes. You know why? Because he says this, truly, truly. I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. I am the self-existent one. I'm the one that has forever existed. I am Yahweh. 
And we know what their response was. They want to kill him because that's blasphemy in, in their minds. And if it was any other person saying it, it would have been blasphemy. But Jesus Christ is God's son, is the son of God. He is God. So his words and the Father are one. His actions and the Father's actions are one. And with all that we're given here, something equally amazing is what John says at the end of this gospel. Look at verses 24 to 25. Chapter 21. The very end of the gospel of John. As you might think that this is all that there was. I mean, there is a lot contained here that we're going to see in the life of Jesus and all that he did and all the miracles that he did and all the sermons that he preached and all the other things that Jesus did that no doubt John and the other apostles and so many disciples were there as eyewitnesses watching. But then you come to this verse and whatever kind of perception you have of what Jesus did is blown away. Because what we see here is this is just a little, small, little, minute picture of what Jesus actually accomplished. This is the disciple, verse 24, who was testifying to these, to, these thi- to these things and wrote these things. And we know that his testimony is true. Why? Because he was an eyewitness. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is under inspiration allowing him to write these things. So everything written in this is true, which includes this next verse. And there are also many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. So if you got all the books together in John's day, every book that he could grab and put together and accumulate them all in how many great big warehouses or whatever, if you took them all out, they still wouldn't. If you changed them all out for what Jesus did, they still wouldn't be able to contain it. And that's from John's perspective. So as John writes this and as he gives this to us, which is really the Lord giving this to us, we must understand that that this is in a limited sense. That what John presents to us here is with intentionality, to do something, to accomplish something. And all the things else that Jesus did that weren't going to help accomplish that, he doesn't include in, in this account. Instead, everything that he includes in this account is going a certain direction. And it's trying to accomplish something. And we see what that is in John chapter 20, verse 31, which is the purpose statement for this entire book. Praise the Lord, there's many other books in the Bible that don't have a clear and distinct purpose statement, but this one does. We know exactly why John wrote this and what his purpose and intentions are for it. What he sees it accomplishing. This is what he wants it to do. And this is, oh, so sweet. This is challenging. And notice how he starts off in verse 30, much like he ends. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. Again, he's selective. But what I have written, look at this, but these have been written. Why? So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. That's what he's after. This is evangelistic in all of the truest sense of what evangelism is. This is why we take people through the Gospel of John. This is why this becomes an arsenal for you. 
This is why right now, however much you share Christ with someone, you should be encouraged to share Christ more through your time in this. Why? Because you're going to have so many tools. You're going to have so many accounts that will be in your memory for you to share this and that with this particular person pointing them to Jesus Christ. Why? So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Son of God. And, and notice this, and what's the result of believing him? And that believing you may have life in his name. Why? Because there's eternal life in no other name but the Lord Jesus Christ. Very exclusive in what John is saying here. And so as a result, this should be both challenging and encouraging to us. As, as we see, the reason for John writing this entire book is for an evangelistic thrust that many would be saved through reading this. And this should make sense to us, right? Turn with me to John three sixteen. Let's read all the way to 21 because oftentimes we just stop and all we read is John 3.16, which is a beautiful verse. It is a good capsule of the gospel. But within its context, it's even that much more powerful. And again, I'm just going to be setting these up and, and letting God's word speak to us this morning. When we go back into this, we will dig in deep by God's wonderful grace and uncover all the gold that the Lord has for us. Today, I'm just going to be giving us kind of the same piece of gold over and over again from these different perspectives that are so amazing. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever, whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the judgment, that the light has come into the world. Notice he goes back to this metaphor of light, light and darkness. Who is the light? The light is the Lord Jesus Christ, whose darkness is all of us who do not know Christ before we put faith in Christ, that we live in darkness. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the judgment that the light has come into the world. And men loved the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. Notice what he says. He says, Jesus came not to condemn the world. Why? Because you didn't need Jesus to be condemned. You're condemned on the basis of your sin already. That you were born into sin and that you can never get out of it without help. We see it in our kids from the time they're very little. We can't escape it. And God's word says that as a result of our sin, we are separated. And the punishment for that is death. So then why did Jesus come? Jesus came to save those whom he could save, those whom he had already destined to be saved, those that he would call to himself. Oh, the amazing gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ that is contained in these verses. 
But notice that the author of salvation is found only in one place. It's found exclusively in the Lord Jesus Christ. And as a result, everything hinges on how you and I respond to the love of God that has been put on display through the life-giving death of Jesus Christ. So we could say it like this, all of eternity hinges on what you do with Jesus. What I do with Jesus. If by God's grace you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, turn from your sins, then what will happen? You will be deemed righteous. You will be declared righteous in his sight and you will enjoy forever with God in heaven in a right relationship with him. And your sin will be not counted against you. Why? Because Jesus Christ bore the wrath of God on the cross for you. But if you do not, if you do not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ unto salvation, repent of your sins, then you will be always and forever in death, eternal death, and condemnation. In this life, if you do not turn, that these are not small little tidbits that Apostle John throws out to us about the Lord Jesus Christ. He's, he's talking about life and death. Whether you're going to spend eternity with God in heaven or whether you're going to spend your eternity in hell. Paying the price for your sin. And yet I don't want us to think this morning that the gospel of John is only for the unsaved. No, the, the Lord should use us, those of us who know the Lord Jesus Christ. He should, he should use this in our lives so we can use it in other people's lives, so that we can be a spokesman, so that we can share these things with others. We can walk our neighbors even through small little sections of John in hopes that they might be saved. So in that and, and in this gospel, the unbeliever by God's grace will see Jesus for the first time. But then us, who are believers, what is it for us? Each time that we, you or me, we spend time in this gospel we will get a greater picture of who the Lord Jesus is. That is what should happen as we spend time digging into the truths of who Jesus is presented to us. Verse after verse, chapter after chapter throughout the Gospel of John. That's what makes it so amazing. It gives us this greater and greater picture of the Lord Jesus Christ so that my prayer would be like this, that as we come here Sunday after Sunday, that however much you view Jesus right now and his greatness, and if you want to look at it as, as, as this big or this big, or maybe it's just this, you're, right now you feel like this is how big Jesus is to you. You don't truly understand his greatness. My, my prayer is that as we come together every Sunday and we spend time in his word, that, that you would grow just a little bit more in your understanding of his, and he becomes greater and greater and greater. And in three weeks, it would be even more. Right now, as you consider your perspective of Jesus, is it any greater today than it was last year? Or are you somehow stagnant? Have you just kind of plateaued? And even in, on a day like this, when we come together for communion, is it just you're just going through a routine? And what he's accomplished for you really doesn't have that pizzazz and, 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 and all of that excitement that it did before. Come and drink deeply. 
from the gospel of John. That's what the Lord has for us. It it reminds me of, of Aslan in Chronicles of Narnia. Do you remember when Lucy goes back to Narnia for, for basically for the second time in Prince Caspian? And as she arrives, what does Aslan say? He, he says, welcome, child. I wish I had that same voice that, you know, you could do from the movies. Welcome, child. And what does she say? She, she says, oh, Aslan, you're bigger. And his response kind of blows her mind. He says, that is because you are older, little one. And she says, it's not because you are? See, she naturally believes that that Aslan has actually gotten bigger and bigger and bigger, but no, it's not that at all. And what he says is, oh, I am not. But every year that you grow, you will find me bigger. My, My question for us all this morning as we begin, are are. Are you committed to seeking the Lord out and watching Jesus get greater and greater and greater? Not because he's getting greater, but but because you are maturing. But because you are growing more and more in your knowledge as little Lucy was growing in her knowledge of the greatness of Aslan. Might we pray that? That the Lord would use this time to grow our understanding of who Jesus is, allowing him to become greater and greater and greater in each of our lives. And might I add that that's, that's going to take more than a Jason Sunday sermon. Might I challenge each one of you to come on Sundays, already having searched the particular passage we're going to look at, thinking through what kind of questions you have and and what your perspective is and what your understanding is of that particular passage and bring those questions and and your pre-study to our time together and then watch the Lord work. And if you want the challenge of of, of trying to, to give me a question that stumps me, sweet. Let's come to God's word and just be ready for him to bless us and to grow our picture of who Jesus is greater and greater as a body. Amen? Okay, let me pray to that end. Heavenly Father, you are so good. Thank you for revealing yourself. Thank you for revealing Jesus Christ to us in the pages of Scripture. Thank you for the book of John. We pray that you would bless the time that we get to spend in your word that you would allow us to see you, Lord Jesus, more and more for who you are, who you truly are, and not just what we think you are, but what your word says and how you are described, how you're defined, in all your majesty and all your splendor. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Okay, so turn with me to John chapter 2. This is where we're going to start. I could have I walked us through the book of John in a, in a, in a couple different ways. Oh, sorry, are you guys already there at John chapter 2? I could have gone to the seven I am statements that the Lord Jesus Christ makes. And these are amazing and we'll see these. Where Jesus starts off and he says, what, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And I am the true vine. But what I want to do instead is this week I want to go through four signs and next week the following four signs. 
that are presented to us in the Gospel of John, signs that are given to prove that Jesus Christ is indeed God, is indeed the coming Savior, is indeed the Messiah. And as we do that, what we're going to see is something oh so significant also revealed in the book of John. And we see it right from the start in this miracle at Cana that with Jesus' mom and the water being turned into wine, which is the first miracle. Look at verses 3 to 11. So Jesus and the disciples and his mom, they end up attending a wedding. Yes, Jesus does weddings. He no doubt was rejoicing and enjoying the time with them. And when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. That, that sa- sounds a, a little bit of a, of a slam on his mom. Perhaps even disrespectful. And when we come back to this, you'll see that it's not. But notice how his mom, and maybe you can relate to this, doesn't listen to him. She just goes on. His mother said to the servants, Whatever he says, you do it. Whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were six stone water water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification containing 20 or 30 gallons each. And Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. So they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw out some and now take it to the head waiter. So they took it to him. And when the head waiter tasted the water, which had become wine, and did not know where where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, The head waiter called the bridegroom and said to him, Every man serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then he serves the poorer wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana and Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. So what is Jesus being depicted as here? What we see is that Jesus is the source of eternal life. That's what he is trying to get across to everyone that is there. He doesn't want to just feed them this wine for this particular day. He wants them to see behind, beyond that particular physical picture and see, oh, no, no, what what I am offering to you is so much greater than this wonderful tasting wine that has surprised you that we're having at the end of the wedding. No, what I've come to offer you is eternal life. We're going to see this explained even more in John 4, 1 to 26 with the the Samaritan woman at the well. Do you remember what, what Jesus says to her? Oh woman, if you knew who it was that was offering you this water, you would have asked me for what? Living water. Water unto eternal life. The kind of water that you only see about in movies but is a reality, but it's not a physical water that you and I drink. It is believing unto the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation and then you will receive that living water. That is what Jesus says later on in chapter 4. But why does he say in in verse 4, my hour has not yet come? Is it because he wasn't going to do miracles? Is that what he means? And then somehow his mom was able to force him to do a miracle that he wasn't planning on doing. Would that make Jesus sovereign and in control? And then whose will is he actually accomplishing? The will of the father or the will of his mom? 
Okay, the answer is it's not his mom. He's doing everything that God purposed him to do. So what is he talking about? Well, what he's talking about is the cross. What he's talking about is reconciliation. What he's talking about is redemption. What he's talking about is giving his life up. And he's saying, hey, my time hasn't come yet. And as we go on to chapter 3, we're still going to see not yet. When you go on to chapter 4, no, not yet. When you get to chapter 5 and they start to get really mad at him and they want to kill him and they pick up stones to throw at him and they can't find him. Do you know why? Because no, not yet. It's not his time. Jesus knows this. We'll see this as we walk through chapter after chapter, scenario after scenario. And it isn't until you get to around chapter 11 with Lazarus. And now Jesus is getting closer to Jerusalem. He's getting closer to the last Passover. He's getting closer to that triumphal entry. Now he's getting closer to the final week where he gives up his life. And then you know what we're going to see? And we'll see this next week. Instead of saying, not yet, not yet, not yet, now he says, it's now it's the time. May I, may I glorify you in all that I do, Father, for the time of salvation has come. And so we see this presented to us right from the start, that Jesus Christ, yes, he was doing all these miracles, but it's always with something greater in focus, that what he's offering isn't just wine. What he's offering is eternal life that is found n- nowhere outside of him. So first we see is the source of life. John chapter 4, turn, turn there with me. Next what we see is the healing, the healing of the royal official's son. The healing of the royal official's son. John 4, 46 to 54. And notice where Jesus comes back again to Cana. Therefore he came again to Cana of Galilee where he had made the water wine and there was a royal official whose son was sick at Capernaum. When he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and was imploring him to come down and heal his son for he was at the point of, point of death. It would seem that this man thought in order for Jesus to do anything and to heal his son, that Jesus had to be there with his son. So you notice, imploring, it's strong. He just keeps pulling, Jesus, come, come, come. I need to get you to my house, and we can't get there in just one day. This is going to take some walking. So come, come, come. My son's going to die. And in just a weird response, look at the way that Jesus responds. So Jesus said to him, unless you people see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. He's saying, it's all going to be about the signs and wonders, but what I want you to believe in is much more than just the wine. I want you to believe that I am eternal life, that I am the source of life, and that I am the giver of life, and that my words are unlike any other person's words who have walked the face of the earth, because I am God. And so now I'm going to blow your mind away and I'm going to heal your son right here, right now while I talk to you and I'm not even going to go with you to your house. Forty-nine, the royal official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Hey, we're wasting too much time here, Jesus. Come with me now. And Jesus said to him, Go, your son lives. Short and sweet. Sweet. 
gives him an opportunity whether to believe it or not. And the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and started off. As he was now going down, his slaves met him, saying that his son was living. So he inquired of them the hour when he began to get better. And then they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. So the father knew that it was at that hour in which Jesus said to him, your son lives. And he himself believed in his whole household. This is again a second sign that Jesus performed when he had come out of Judea into Galilee. So it would seem that the first believe was just, okay, yeah, my son's going to get better. I'm, I'm not trusting you as the Savior, as God. And then it would seem that later when he meets his workers coming, his slaves, and they tell him, hey, your son's totally doing better. And they ask him, oh, well, it happened exactly this time. And he traces it back. And then what does he recognize? He recognizes that Jesus' words aren't like anybody else's words. That Jesus isn't like any normal man. That Jesus is indeed God. And then notice what he does with that belief. Does he keep it to himself? Does he sit on it, never share it with anybody? No, he shares it with his household, and we see that they then believe as well. This again is what John's gospel was written for, that they might believe. That is what Jesus desires. Notice what 48 says. So Jesus said to him, unless you people see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. This is what the people wanted. They wanted some sort of sign to collaborate, to, to prove that who Jesus was, that he was indeed the coming Messiah. It's just that they thought he would be the king that would take over Rome and reign triumphant for them. And it's very much similar to what we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 21 to 24, where Paul says this, For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and wisdom of God. If you're only looking at it from the perspective of just a sign, you're not going to get it. There's more to believe than just believing that Jesus could do great things, that he was just a prophet. No, they must believe that he is the Son of God. You must believe that he is the Son of God. And next we see in the third sign, the healing of the lame man. Look at John chapter 5. Now Jesus comes to Jerusalem, and in Jerusalem there's this pool, this pool of Bezda. And supposedly an angel would go into that pool and, and stir up the water. And whoever would get into that water immediately after that, that stirring up, they would be healed. And so Jesus meets a man. A man was there who had been ill for 38 years, verse 5. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been a long time in that condition, he said to him, do you wish to get well? And the sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I am coming, another steps down before me. And Jesus said to him, Get up, pick up your pallet and walk. 
And immediately the man became well and picked up his pallet and began to walk. Now it was the Sabbath on that day. Then things don't go so well. And look at what happens. Jesus meets him later. This man doesn't even know who Jesus is. Verse 14, after, afterward Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, Behold, you have become well. Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. And the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. And for this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But he answered them, My father is working until now, and I myself am working. Implied, I and the father are one. When he works, I work. When I work, he is working. All of this to point to the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ is the divine healer. He can cure those diseases that were forever and are incurable. He can do what no other man can do. He can even feed thousands and thousands of people with five loaves and two fish, which is what we see next, which adds to the idea of Jesus not just being the source of eternal life, but he is the giver of eternal life, that he is the one from which we can receive eternal life. And we see this in John chapter 6. And this, we're only six chapters in of all the depths, of all that Jesus is going to teach us and show us about himself in this gospel. And look at verse 2, chapter 6. A large crowd followed him. Why? Because they saw the signs which he was performing on those who were sick. They're wondering, are you the Messiah? And then Jesus went up to the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was near. Therefore, Jesus, lifting up his eyes and seeing that a large crowd was coming to him, said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these may eat? This he was saying to test him, for he himself knew that he was what he was intending to do. And, and look at how Philip responds. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, for everyone to receive a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are, those, what are these for so many people? And Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, in number about 5,000. Jesus then took the loaves, and having given thanks, he distributed to those who were seated, likewise also of the fish as much as they wanted. When they were filled, he said to his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments so that nothing will be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves which were left over by those who had eaten. Therefore, when the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, this is truly the prophet who has come into the world. Not this is truly the son of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. But what is Jesus revealing to us? That he is the bread of life. That in giving them this bread, that it's a, it's a picture to something greater. That what he can offer us is salvation. All of eternity shared with him through trusting, believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, repenting of our sins. But look at verse 15. So Jesus, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. Why? Why did Jesus not want them to usher in him as the coming king? 
and bring in his kingdom. Because the cross had to come first before the kingdom. Because he had to first, first purchase redemption. First he had to die upon the cross. So this would have turned God's plans for redemption all upside down. So there was no way that this could happen. In essence, what we could say is it wasn't time yet. And so Jesus, and notice, he, he knew their thoughts. Nobody was saying this, he just knew their thoughts. Why? Because he is God. So in all of this, we, we see clearly John desires to make much of Jesus through teaching us that Jesus is unlike any other man who walked the face of the earth. He's God incarnate, able to do much more than we can possibly hope or imagine. And that is what we're going to see week after week. He can turn water into wine. He can heal a sick boy from a different location with just his word. He can do what no other person can do, and he can give sight to a man born blind. And finally, we've seen that he can feed over 15,000 people with just five loaves and two fish. Why? Because he is the bread of life. Because he is able to offer us that which would feed us forever. He is the light of the world. He is able to take us from our spiritual darkness and bring us into the kingdom of his light and be with him forever. Amen? I trust that the Lord will use his word in our hearts and lives this week and I pray that as you guys spend time this week preparing for next week, look ahead. You already have notes for where we're going to go, what we're going to spend time on. And praise the Lord for his word. Let me, let me close this out in prayer as, as Pastor Shane and the worship team come up. Heavenly Father, we rejoice in your goodness to us. We thank you for this day. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the gospel of John that we are just beginning to look at where we will see that you are the bread of life. That what you offer, no other could offer. And what you give, no other could give. And that it is received freely through believing, through faith in you, faith in you alone. We thank you for such a beautiful Savior. And we pray that you would use our meager lives to speak much of you, to point others to you, that we would become greater and greater in, in our ability to share you with others and that you would become greater and greater in our understanding of you and just how wonderful you are. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.